This is the John Oakley Show podcast. All right, let's get started. A lot of topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville, pound 3636. Our panel every Wednesday, Ernie Eves, a former premier and finance minister here in Ontario. How's Ernie? I'm great. Nice and sunny out there today. Sunny ways indeed, my friend, sunny ways. Uh, John Turley, Ewart, risk management consultant specializing in capital markets with extensive experience on Bay and Wall Streets. Good afternoon to you, John. Good afternoon, John. And Dan Moulton, a consultant, uh, consultant at Crestview Strategy, that's a public affairs agency, and a former advisor in the McGuinney and Wind governments. How's Dan doing? I'm doing well, Johnny. How are you? Good. Good, too. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people doing well in the province. They just came out with a sunshine list, which is uh, for public sector salaries over 100000 Now, who the hell would come up with this idea to begin <laughs> with? Oh, Ernie! <laughs> Somebody's guilty here. <laughs> what were you thinking? What was the impetus for this idea back when? In the well, don't forget, this was 1995, and $100,000 was a lot different than $100,000 sure today. I think the thing should definitely be changed. I mean, what are we talking? 24 years later, we're still operating on the same yeah. basic premise. So it's getting to be a little bit of a joke. Yeah, I think it'd be like 150. Thousand oh, at least yeah, maybe maybe yeah. two, yeah. yeah. Really, with inflation, like you know, you look at well, hundred thousand dollars. No, look, I would like I, I would say hundred thousand dollars isn't was it, it? Sorry, is not uh, in Toronto what it was uh, when you put it in place, Ernie. But you know, where I grew up, Woodstock, Ontario, like people making a hundred thousand dollars in oh, public yeah. service, that's still a lot of money, right? And so, uh, I'm not sure things have changed across Ontario in the same way. Um, so I would take yeah, issue with it that. But way. here's well, and here's the thing that some people take issue with because uh, while it may be diminished in terms of uh, an eye popper that there are so many people, I don't know, twenty thousand making over. I think it was eighteen thousand. Okay, I just rounded it to the nearest twenty thousand. Uh, you could be a finance minister. Well, but you know, look, <laughs> I, I could, you know. But the thing is, uh, what it doesn't factor in is the public sector pensions, and the plus, 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 John Turley Ewart. So these packages are far more lucrative than they look at, at face value, are they not? Well, I, the, I have a problem with this. I mean, this is one thing that Ernie's government passed that struck me more as an NDP kind of proposal because it drips in envy. Uh, you know, look, we, we live in a competitive market. The government has to compete for, for high-skilled uh, labor, uh, and you pay the market rate. And I see this uh, quite frequently in the work that I do. Uh, you know, good luck trying to get, uh, you know, someone who works on Bay Street or Wall Street to go and work for the federal government or for the provincial government. Uh, you have to pay competitive rates. And if you're not willing to pay competitive rates, you don't get the people that you need. All right. Well, look at the top of the uh, pyramid here is Jeffrey Lyash, president and CEO of the Ontario Power Generation, uh, making base salary 1.75. Yeah. So w- what you're saying is that's... Yeah, but he runs three, uh, he, he oversees uh, two nuclear plants. No, I wasn't right? quibbling. I, mean, I was like, just going to say maybe he's coming in cheap. Well, uh, Drake gets, uh, Drake makes 90 million bucks a year and he doesn't run a nuclear plant. This guy only gets <laughs> 1.7 million. So, and he know. runs two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Drake would have the nightclub beside the nuclear plant where he can bring his... Uh, Baller friends yeah. after, yeah, they're all glowing. All right, so what you're saying is this, to your mind, the idea of even having this sets up the politics of envy. Yeah. A class warfare, if you will. Yeah, it's, it's and you know what, sometimes on the right and on the, on the parts of the left, particularly the NDP, you get this kind of envy politics, which I, I don't think is very constructive. Well, hmm. all right, but it does also lead to uh, perhaps making it easier to massage policy decisions. For example, just uh, today it was noted that uh, healthcare executives in eight different or se- seven different healthcare in- industries or agencies, including uh, the Lens, eHealth, uh, 
1,460 staff at these seven health agencies drew a combined $188 million in salary. So it suggests to me that this is an area where, uh, you know, this new health agency is supposed to kind of reconstruct things, reform, uh, and this might be one area of reform, public sector salaries in the health industry, and, you know, at the managerial level. I'm not talking about frontline nurses or doctors or anything like that. Does that make sense to you that that's a good area for Doug Ford to take a whack at? Well, John, I'd say that the government and decision makers like Doug Ford have that information at their disposal, whether or not you publish it out there in the local paper or not, right? Like you can well, still make decisions. You can still make decisions based on the cost of the executive team at that agency, as you're raising the example, based on what intel the government has from running those agencies. I think the matter of publishing people's salaries in the paper is a bit of a different matter. Uh, and I think it does deserve, as John says, uh, some second guessing because we do have to attract the most talented people uh, to run our healthcare agencies, to run our nuclear plants. Uh, people like Jeff Lyash, you raise him $1.7 million. He's actually leaving. Uh, he's, he's, he's leaving a CEO or has left a CEO of, of OPG. Uh, he's headed to run uh, uh, the federal uh, government's uh, in the U.S.'s uh, agency uh, for electricity. And he's taking a massive pay increase. We're talking $30 million, I think, his predecessor made uh, in that job. Arguably, the job that he was doing here was more important because he's fixing up two nuclear plants, right? Okay, but I don't think anybody's arguing against The whole point of a sunshine that. list, though, is that it's the public's money and the public is entitled to know who's making what. You can't have, for example, the CEO of Hydro making whatever it is, and I'm not arguing that 1.7, it probably is light on the light side in terms of CEO in charge of OPG, but you can't hide what these people are making. That's the whole point. It's the public's money. You're not running your own private company. You're running the province of Ontario where the government of Canada, as the case may be, and surely the public who's paying their salary is entitled to know what their salary is. It could be $15 million, maybe yeah, it could but, be but see, this is where I'll million. disagree with you. I, see, the challenge is you're, you're putting the person's name on it rather than putting the salary range for the position within the government. And so, you know, this is this is a big day, for example, in universities across uh, Ontario, because all those professors get that list, close their door, turn off the light and get really upset when they find their neighbor down the halls making an extra five grand from them. And then you start popping the Prozac thinking that, you know, I didn't publish enough. Right. Like, the voice like, of experience. It, it's seriously, you, should, yeah, you no. know, I have no problem with publishing salary ranges for different positions and levels within government. But when you start putting people's names out there. I think what you're doing is, is, is not helpful. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's, it's different to talk about the executives of government agencies or, or, or people that work in the public service. Executives of publicly, publicly traded companies are required to disclose the salaries and salary ranges of senior executives. That's fine. That, that, that is expected. I agree with you there, sir. But when we're talking about individual teachers or, or frontline nurses or university professors... Well, in my opinion, they shouldn't be on the list in the first place. That's what I said. That's why I said... Well, you started that, this out that, by saying $100,000 isn't very much money, and now you're saying those people don't no, deserve in, a good wage. $100,000 in 1995 was a heck of a lot different than $100,000 yeah. in, in 2019. So they shouldn't be on You're the list. We're talking 24 okay. years ago. They shouldn't be on the list in the first place. You probably have a lot of OPP officers on that list. You probably have all kinds of workers for, for Ontario Hydro on that list sure. uh, who probably shouldn't, quite frankly, be there anymore. All right, because you're saying the threshold ought to be bumped up to yes, 150 absolutely. or 175 or whatever. Okay, uh, but for example, then, when I just uh, mentioned the high-priced health care execs, uh, there are 1,460 of them at these seven health agencies. 
making $188 million collectively. I guess it's the positioning statement. When you were saying, Dan, well, you know, the government, it can unilaterally go about and decide how it wants to pair certain agencies and so on. But this sells it to the public more readily, again, based on the premise. There's a politics of envy or people think with their uh, defined benefit pensions and everything, they're living a better life than the guy who's busting his hump in the private sector. uh, No, so I'd position that differently. That's about bureaucracy. So really what you're talking about is you have these lens that are set up and it's it's about a bureaucracy and not frontline service. So you can definitely look at what the total cost of that kind of bureaucracy is and ask yourself, can you manage the healthcare system better so you can deliver more money to the front line? I don't, I think that's completely different from a sunshine list. Okay, but okay, fine. Uh, but in this instant where you're saying bureaucracy, that's an area where they can cut. Absolutely. Okay, to the point you're making then, how come Ford is getting so much resistance pri- primarily from the NDP ranks because they want to reform the whole healthcare system and bring it under one umbrella, Ontario Health? Well, the NDP wants big government. That's what they're, that's their business. That's why everything is about big government government and bureaucracy is is their middle name so when they see someone going after bureaucracy what are they well, of course they're going to react okay earning that come as a surprise to you that the ndp likes big government no <laughs> you've never said that before and yeah, i've never, never even never. thought that for a moment all right <laughs> you know john i actually i i, I i'm fine with uh, with what the government's doing uh, from a centralization perspective for uh, the management of healthcare i get why they're doing it for, especially from a planning perspective and, and better le- better locally integrated care uh, i do think the the challenge is that I think the LINs did get a bad rap, to be honest with you, because I don't think it's an extra layer of bureaucracy. I think it was an attempt to move decision-making to a more local level, which is something that we consistently in politics in this province talk about the need for. We need to see public services administered uh, and planned for at increasingly local levels because we know that the needs in northern Ontario and North Bay or uh, further north are different than they are in southwestern Ontario. And so that's my only concern with the centralization approach that the government might take with healthcare is that is, are you really just putting a bureaucrat in Toronto in charge of planning, or is it about putting someone more, a little bit closer to home in charge of planning? If I understand the model correctly, it's going to be like uh, about 300 smaller centers, you know, for healthcare uh, under the rubric of, you know, the one central planned agency, whatever, but they're still going to have these uh, locally responsive uh small hubs or whatever. That's just my overview. By the way, I got to ask you something else. I wanted to move on with more topics worthy of discussion. I see where Doug Ford's being sued for $5 million by Brad Blair. He had filed notice on March 15th. Ernie, just out of uh, curiosity, uh, should Ford lose in this regard? Who pays the cost? That's the province, isn't it? Well, that probably would be the case, yes, if he was acting in his capacity as premier or minister or whatever. The normal procedure is that the province pays for it as long as the individual is acting in their capacity as whatever they are, deputy minister, you know, premier, whatever. Okay. Just wanted to know. We'll come back. More topics worthy of discussion in a moment with our panel. Ernie Eves, John Turlier, Dan Moulton on The Oakley Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. There are more topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville, pound 3636, with our panel, Dan Moulton, John Turlier, and Ernie Eves. Ernie, out of curiosity, help me here because uh, I need to understand something. You, the former premier and finance minister, you know, uh, it says here from a report the Fraser Institute came out with 10 years ago, Quebec was the most indebted province in Canada, Ontario, middle of the pack. Uh, Quebec's per person debt load was 4,100 more than Ontario's. But uh, fast forward to today where uh, Ontario's per capita debt load is 3,000 more than the province of Quebec. They've reversed all of that, and uh, we're going in the other direction. 
So why are they still drawing transfer payments and uh, to the tune of like $13, $15 billion annually? <laughs> You could ask Dan. <laughs> I, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I think I know the. Answer, I came up but... with equalization. With me. <laughs> well, the equalization. We've talked about this before. The equalization formula needs to be totally changed. They need to scrap it, start over again. Almost every transfer payment that the federal government has to provinces for whatever, whether it's post-secondary education, social assistance, whatever it is has an equalization factor of a different kind. They're not all the same built into it. And then we have an e another equalization program on top of that. And certain provinces like Newfoundland are guaranteed that their payment can't go below certain things. It really, it just takes the political courage to scrap the whole thing and start over. I have nothing against equalization payments. I mean, that's why you're part of the country called Canada. Sure, for needy but, but, provinces. But you can't just keep on, you know, changing the system and really, to be quite frank, basically probably for political gain, that isn't what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to help the provinces that need help and not help provinces that don't need the help. It's not supposed to be a political payoff. Well, that's Quebec now. Quebec is flush with cash. They've balanced their budget. They're looking to run a surplus of $2.5 billion, I think, in the next fiscal. Meanwhile, here in Ontario, uh, we're going in the other direction. Quebec has much higher taxes as well. Well, okay, but uh, so what Personal do you Personal and corporate. I mean, so, I think they, they have a, a balanced budget this year uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, certainly some spending curtailment compared to where they were previously is, is a big part of that. Uh, but also more appropriately, uh, I think, set taxes. Uh, and 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 they, I think they've dealt with the revenue side of the ledger in a way that Ontario hasn't. Governments of all stripes uh, haven't dealt with it, the problem. Uh, we expect a certain standard of public service, uh, expansive public service in this province. Uh, somebody's got to pay for it. So what and you're so saying is I, Ontario, to uh, use the aphorism, has a revenue problem rather than a spending problem. I think I think Ontario has a, a revenue problem. Yes, absolutely. And I think that yeah, sure, there are areas where our spending could be reduced, but largely, I don't think the people of this province. Uh, want the spending to be radically reduced in the kind of way that would be required. That's Dan uh, Moulton, by the way, uh, who was an advisor in the McGuinty and Wynn governments. I'm not ashamed of the perspective. I'm not ashamed of the perspective. We have some of the lowest corporate taxes uh, in the country in this province. Uh, we Historically low. Uh, I think that they have not been readjusted since the global recession in 2008, and they ought to be considered. We need to think about that. Now, we have to remain competitive. The Americans have significantly reduced corporate taxes as well, and we need to ensure that, that we can stay ahead. But I think we do have a revenue problem in this province that needs to be dealt with, uh, certainly at the province and certainly at the municipal level. All right, let's get John in here. You haven't had your say. Well, I'm just I'm just thinking about this. Uh, you know, you're talking about corporate taxes. Uh, remember, Quebec is the place where they pay head offices to keep foot in the ground. Sure. So you may have high taxes, but in the mean, what you're taking out of one pocket, you're handing it back to them in the other. So there's a bit of a game going on in Quebec there. I, I think uh, Quebec is a different kind of market in North America. Uh, francophone. Uh, you know, clearly a different kind of economy in some ways. Uh, our big concern in, in places like uh, Ontario is brain drain. You get your taxes too high, work on Wall Street rather than Bay Street. You know, or go down to Atlanta, work down in Atlanta, because there's an awful lot of people in the, in the United States who are looking for the kind of talent we have here. Uh, the alternative to that, of course, is you increase uh, the you know salaries uh, in order to compensate for the taxes, which increases housing. And who does that crush? The people who are not in that that level of, of uh, income bracket, 
uh, and that doesn't help your your affordable housing in places like Toronto either. Uh, you do have to remain competitive, and Ontario is a different market than Quebec. We face uh, competition from New York State on the state level. As we know, you can shift your business down there, and your taxes uh, for 10 years, you're not paying anything. So, uh, you know, this idea that we can just somehow generate revenues by increasing taxes is, I think, a mistake. I prefer the uh, Ernie Eves model. How many times did you cut taxes, Ernie? 222. And did you raise revenues? Yes. Oh, there we go. There's a, there, there's a model to follow. <laughs> well, all right. Uh, you know, you, you cited Quebec and how they uh, retain head offices and the like because uh, SNC-Lavalin, you know, uh, that was really central to the whole narrative surrounding Jody Wilson-Raybould being demoted and uh, the whole thing. Well, that was thing. quite the pivot, John. I got, I got whiplash from that <laughs> Yeah, one. all right. Well, uh, wait, there's still more to come. You're coming back in the other direction well, now. Dan's now playing the part of the NDP member. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, he may want to switch allegiances. Oh. But look, what, what's really now transpired, according to anonymous sources, the reason for Jody Wilson-Raybould being uh, shuffled down to Veterans Affairs is because uh, she wasn't on side with Justin Trudeau when it came to appointing a successor to Beverly McLaughlin as a Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Apparently, she had uh, put forth the name of Glenn Joyelle, who was the uh, head of the court in Manitoba, Chief Justice of the Court of Queen's Bench, and... Uh, it turns out that uh, Justin Trudeau didn't like him, according to the narrative, because he was too conservative on charter issues, uh, for example, suggesting that the legislatures or you know parliament should be making policy and laws rather than the justices, so he wasn't an activist judge. Anyway, the long and the short of it is this is now pivoted towards that being the reason that Jody Wilson-Raybould was scuttled from the AG's position which, I don't know, Ernie, does this make any sense to you, or do you think they're just trying to pivot the Liberals, the anonymous sources here, to cast Justin as a virtuous defender of the Charter? Well, I think whoever leaked this information should be turfed. I mean, there's no... You can't start politicizing the selection of judges now. I mean, we actually have a fairly good process for selecting judges in this country compared to our neighbours, with all due respect to them, (laughs) south of the border. It should not be become a political, you know, sideshow, uh, a circus, uh, trying to score political points. It should be getting the most qualified men and women on the bench representing different parts of the country. That's why you have a Supreme Court in the first place. So I think we, we've done a, whoever leaked this has done a huge disservice uh, to Mr. Justice Joyal in the first place and probably misrepresented his points of view, although I don't, I'm don't, i no expert in that with respect to the facts. And they've probably done a huge disservice to uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould as well. So it continues to fester. That's the story. It's not going away anytime soon. Dan, you still think it's a tempest in a teapot? Well, I think the, the opposition certainly are very desperate to keep this uh, alive and, and, and well, and they'll, they'll do their part. This is the kind of thing you dream about when you're in opposition. So I, I don't, you know, of course that's what they're up to. I, I do think there's an element of, of, of repetition in this story. There's not a lot of new information being added to this. I know this, the Globe had this story this morning. Gave you some. Uh, but it, it really isn't relevant to the, the main element of this, right? Like, it, it, I, I don't know. It's, oh, it's but it is. How could you say that? It's about the, the respect of, of rule of law. Oh. You know, this is really what it comes down to. What respect the does the question. prime minister's office have for the rule of law? That's the issue. And if you have the prime minister's office, someone in there leaking information, which you don't again, know that that's draw, where it came from. If, if you have, well, you know, the good thing that happened today is that Jody Wilson-Raybould said, let's have an investigation. And David Lametti said he's concerned. 
well, maybe we'll get an investigation into the prime minister's office and whoever leaked this. <laughs> All right. We'll you know, come back. I've got a follow-up question that's a doozy as well. So uh, we'll pursue that line in a moment with our panel and topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. Pound 3636. All right, back into it here till the top of the hour. Coming up at 6, it's the Global News at 6 with Farhan Asser and Alan Carter. Right now with our panel, Dan Moulton, John Terley Ewart, Ernie Eves. Uh, so this is it. Jody Wilson-Raybould, yesterday on this program, the deputy leader of the opposition, Lisa Raitt, uh, in lieu of all of these developments where the ethics committee was shut down or shut down the prospect of Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott uh, getting to speak more of their truth, she says that uh, she believes the Liberal caucus will actually kick these two women out of caucus next week. They'll be doing the dirty work, Justin Trudeau, kind of at arm's length, will accede to their wishes. That's what her theory is. So you're all betting men, I take it? Uh, the over-under is uh, next Wednesday, as far as I can <laughs> see. Dan Moulton, uh, do you see this on plan? So Lisa Raitt, the, the deputy leader of the Conservative Party, this is her theory. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I would I would consider her an informed source on what the Liberal caucus is going to get up to. Well, over the she's taking of the next a, week. A, an educated guess, knowing how they work. I mean, yeah, if it past sounds is, a bit speculative. I, does I, it? I, like, I don't know. Okay, I, so I, you're I saying that, no. I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that it, these uh, former ministers are, are planning to run in the election under the, the liberal tent. Uh, they need to, you know, be on the team, uh, and then they need to they need uh-huh. to start acting that way. Uh, they need to start acting are you that sure way. that was a no? Uh. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, I I, I I think that is going to be uh, a question they need to answer themselves: is do they want to <laughs> remain in this caucus or not? All right. Uh, do they support? Uh, uh, this prime minister, because he's going to be on the ballot in the fall, and they need to decide if they're going to be on the ballot with him. Okay, so you're not going to bet anything. You're going to keep your powder dry. How about you, John? Well, I would say that um, today the, the former attorney general uh, produced documents and gave to the Justice Committee. Uh, shockingly, they're still trying to translate them into French, uh, and we haven't had <laughs> them released yet. Can do uh, apparently in Ottawa, there's not uh, <laughs> translators <laughs> around uh, to do this in a fairly quick way. I would suggest to you that... Um, when uh, caucus reads these documents, they're going to have a serious conversation next week about whether they can remain uh, in caucus with someone uh, who is torpedoing uh, their prospects. And frankly, in, in the way real politics works is, as you said, if you're part of the team, you're in. If you're not, you're out. Well, and, and Sheila Copps was suggesting that, you know, Justin Trudeau get rid of them and, uh, you know, no uh, less an august personage than Sheila Copps, Ernie, as well as Judy Scrow saying, you know, put up or shut up. So there's internecine warfare already. I mean, the rift is developed. I mean, this can only exacerbate things if, as John says, there's more damning testimony or uh, of her truth. Do you think she'll be kicked out uh, of caucus by caucus members? A revolt. Well, she may be. Let me say, though, that I don't think anybody's kicked out of caucus without the blessing of the leader's office, and nobody can tell me otherwise. I mean, just the same as there's no vote that happens in committee without some direction from the party whip. I don't care which party it is. So that's the way the system works. To even suggest that this is a free vote is almost ludicrous, just like the speaker is always chosen by the House of Commons or by the legislature in Ontario without any input from the Premier's <laughs> office or the Prime Minister. That's BS. I mean, that isn't the way the system works. All right. So Behind the curtain. The, the, I like this. The this long and the short of it is... If Trudeau wants them gone, they'll be gone. If he doesn't want them gone, they won't be gone, unless they quit themselves. All right, so here's the point, then. If the leader ultimately does say, uh, even though they might want to masquerade or uh, leave it look like it's arm's length, are you saying that Doug Ford had a hand in kicking Randy Hillier out of caucus? 
<laughs> oh, heavens no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please. Well, I, I still, I'm still trying to figure out what he got kicked out of caucus for. I think that that's the, that seems to be the, the lack of He wasn't of a team player. For being Randy. <laughs> <laughs> How do you mean that? <laughs> Who knows what's going on well, there? Quite a the... strong list of accusations, though, I mean, that he published in that letter. And there, I, and there hasn't been a lot of conversation since that uh, that, that well, I've seen. Here's least. my question. Do you think this could damage Doug Ford, those accusations from Randy Hillier that are not substantiated by more detail? I think if they were substantiated, of course, that would do damage. I, I, I think it's a bit odd to be, you know, they've, they've thrown two senior members of their caucus or seniority members of their caucus out uh, over the course of the last uh, few months. We saw Jim Wilson uh, turfed in the fall and, and now uh, Randy Hillier. And it, it seems like it's a very early point in a government's mandate to have had that those two individuals who are longstanding members of that party, I'm sure they were in the House with you, sir, uh, but I know, I know they both were, uh, to have been thrown out of the party this quickly. is It's a bit odd, and I do think it looks bad on, on, on the Premier and the government. But Jim Wilson, with all due respect, as I understand it, left caucus of his own free will and accord. He knew that this was going to create a problem for the party, and he did the right thing. This isn't the first time Jim Wilson's resigned from caucus. Of he resigned once as health minister yep. because something was published while he was the minister without his knowledge, and he did the right thing then. He stepped aside, and when he was found by the Conflict of Integrity Commissioner not to have done anything wrong, he was put back into cabinet. That's the way the system is supposed to work. There's always individuals in every caucus that I've ever seen that are real problems for that particular party. <laughs> I mean, you can almost, I'm not going to name them on air, but... That everybody, yes, let's, let's everybody, everybody's <laughs> sitting around this table who's been involved with uh, party politics at Queen's Park or in the House of Commons knows who they are. There's always rogue individuals who won't toe the party line, who create all kinds of problems behind the scenes and a headache for the party, the prime minister, the premier, whatever. Sure. Uh, so that's nothing new. I don't see this as a... Is a really big thing. There, there is a, a method for Mr. Hilliard to go to the integrity commissioner if he is a member of the legislature feels that this sort of stuff is going on. He, he has a, a remedy. Uh, well, that's what he said he's doing, and which he couldn't comment further with specifics uh, as to his <laughs> allegations. So we'll see where this plays out. Uh, finally, I've got to ask, uh, John, let me direct it to you because I know you've dealt with high finance and you understand the capital markets, notwithstanding, of course, Ernie was the finance minister in the province. But this yield curve uh, has inverted for the first time in 12 years. And uh, so what that means in layperson's terms and the impact that could have, because some people say this is every indicator that a recession, we could be in one already or one's coming. Right. It means that you're getting higher interest rates for short-term money versus long-term money, and that's typically a problem. Uh, And what that means is people have lost confidence in where the economy is going to be uh, at this time next year. Uh, And there's no doubt that there's there's a real concern uh, that the growth in the economy is slowing, uh, that you're going to see uh, our debt levels uh, start to take a hit um, uh, on people's ability to to pay their mortgages, pay their car payments, uh, and uh, that'll trickle through into higher unemployment. And of course, this comes fortunately at a time when Ontario is flush with cash <laughs> and can uh, use its uh, Keynesian economic. Oh no, that that's true. We can't. That's actually <laughs> untrue. Uh, and so it comes at a terrible time. Uh, we just don't have the money in Ontario to deal with this, and uh, people are looking at it and saying. What do we need to do? And this is where you're going to see some spending being cut back. Uh, you know, businesses are going to think, you know, what do we need to do? Should we be hiring anyone right now? Because if growth isn't coming, that's going to be a problem. It's, it's very worrisome. 
All right. Well, as you say, uh, you know, this is like a perfect storm aligning against us. If, uh, as we pointed out before, uh, we have uh, a revenue problem rather than a spending problem in the province of Ontario. Dan, I believe I'm paraphrasing you. Uh, how are we going to raise more revenues if we're falling into a flat line? Well, I mean, one of the one of the first things we need to do is get that Trans Mountain pipeline built. Uh, people don't realize how many billions that costs uh, Ontario in terms all the banks in downtown Toronto. They, f- they help finance all of that. There's there's thousands of jobs associated with that in Ontario. Uh, we got to figure out what's going on with China. They're they're cutting off our canola uh, sales. Huge huge issue, right? So the, those are things that are actually within our control that we can help use to drive exports. Driving those exports drives more money into the economy, creates more uh, confidence, and helps ease the challenges we're facing right now. Ernie, what's your sense? I mean, Doug Ford in a bit of a bind. He's been painted into a corner. I mean, he's trying to reduce the deficit and the debt at the same time. uh, You know, people still expect the services, as Dan kept pointing out. And if all of this is happening to a flatlined economy, uh, where's the maneuverability here? Well, he doesn't have a lot of maneuverability, to be quite honest. I mean, he's going to have to do the best he can do with with the situation he's in. Uh, I find it hard to believe just... What was it two weeks ago that Mr. Morneau said the economy was in wonderful shape and things were going to look great before by the end of the year, and now you have the governor of the Bank of Canada perhaps disagreeing with the Minister of Finance federally. I'm just throwing that out there sarcastically, but it isn't obviously all rosy as Mr. Morneau pointed out, and you know we all know why he did it. There's an election coming up this fall, and. Uh, he obviously doesn't want to say, well, we're going to be there while the economy is going into the tank, so he couldn't possibly say that. <laughs> so uh, he's spinning it as best he can to save some seats in the election. Yeah. I, well, I think people have been saying, you know, we're, we're heading into a recession. We're heading into a recession for the last few years. You, you've heard it pretty consistently. Consistently, economic growth has proven a bit stronger than predictions. Uh, job growth has proven stronger than predictions. There are certainly parts of this country that are uh, not doing as well. Atlantic Canada, Alberta are not doing as well. I think here in Ontario, are, are, we're in a pretty good spot. I think the provincial balance sheet is in a better position than the provincial government has led on when they took office last summer. I mean, every new government finds a big hidden deficit. I'm, I think, sir, you'd, you'd probably recall a government oh, after yes, you I, uh, finding I, 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 I seem $2 to recall the like, finding about $5 billion more yeah, than yeah, everything. Oh, two I'm going to have to end on that note. We're done for the day. I appreciate it, guys. Ernie Eves, John Turley-Ewart, Dan Moulton, and we'll say sayonara till next week. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 